Today we will be discussing evil and the different manifestations of evil in both biblical, Talmudic, medieval, and modern understandings of um, scripture and revelation. Do you have something to get us started with, um, Mikhail, where you could tell us um, where do where are we going with this conversation today? Uh, <laughs> the topic you came up with, and you want me to start. <laughs> sure. um, so. <clears throat> I guess I kind of wanted to, I was kind of hoping that we could sort of uh, really flesh out the problem of evil, which is something that uh, is frequently used in philosophy to attack uh, the religious belief in an all-powerful God. Um, but also perhaps to touch on the, the, uh, the personhood, quote unquote, for the listeners that couldn't see me do air quotes, uh, uh, of Satan, of Hasatan. Um, uh, there's obviously a vastly differing uh, paradigm about who and what he is from uh, Judaism to Christianity and then even into Islam. So uh, maybe we'll touch on that too. Well, and, and the reason I want to talk about the subject is because, you know, a lot of people think it's a Dungeons and Dragons type of battle between good and evil. So if last time we discussed the existence of God, then we have to talk about the existence of his foe, the devil. And, you know, people watch a lot of um, Hollywood version of, of um, demonology and possessions. And in all those movies, the devil is like so powerful and the priests or whoever is fighting it, like, can barely get their bearings. So this idea that the the forces of evil have so much at their disposal, and then the people who serve God are, are barely scrambling to appease them. Yeah. What do you think about that? Are, are they glorifying evil and making it seem like we need to be scared of it? Or is it for dramatic effect? Or is this their poor theology that has been... Um, I think it's probably a mixture of all of those. Uh, it's definitely a lack of understanding of what, not necessarily of what, of why evil exists. Um, the idea, also, like it tends to, at, especially in the minds of people who don't spend, you know, significant amounts of energy in their time in their lives studying religion of any kind uh it tends to create this dualistic worldview that there's this equal force of good and this equal force of evil forever opposed to one another and we actually see that in the far east with uh certain concepts uh there's dualistic thought uh and monistic thought that come up monism is quite different though um not even get into that right now but um I think that with the the overhyping of evil that uh, for the most part, I think the filmmakers and the novel writers are fully aware that they're just dramatizing. It, you know, I don't think they necessarily see it that way. Perhaps with some of the Christian fiction writers, um, maybe it gets that way. I'm not sure. I haven't read Christian fiction in 20 years uh so um not really sure uh but 
I, I kind of would say it sort of tends to glorify evil, but only because the main thing that evil is there for is actually to grow us and to shape us and to bring us to resist it. And we'll, we'll get into that more throughout this, this talk, but uh, you know, films can't really express that in a short period of time. A book probably could. Um, but yeah, I think it's mostly drama, bad theology, uh, and incidentally glorifying evil most of the time. Well, I have a friend who's a Noahide and he sent me a book from the Kabbalah centers on audio about Satan and they turned it into like, you know, in psychology, um, Carl Jung talked about the shadow. Mm -hmm. They turn it into that, that is the negative aspect of yourself and that you're always wrestling that. But to me, when, they start going that route. I've seen some Chabad stuff or other Hasidic guys that are trying to be very psychological in the way they explain religion. And it just gets all garbled up into this um, pseudo psychology that doesn't really address the, the issues. I would like to go back to the biblical narrative where you have the story of Job. And, you know, I heard um, um, our Orthodox guy say that it was uh, a metaphor or some type of didactical text that it wasn't, um, you know, a historical narrative. Uh, in the Christian world, they say that it's a historical narrative, that it was the first book that was written before the Torah, uh, even it was um, dictated. So um, what do you think about that story? Because a lot of atheists and other people, they make fun of it, that what kind of a cruel God would play chess with uh, the demonic realm and then, do all these horrible, allow all these horrible things happen to Job. And then at the end, it's like, well, I'm just going to give him tons of more stuff than what he lost. It just seems very um, kind of infantile of a story. Um, have you read or, or know of any deeper understandings of it that you can share with us? So uh, I actually know quite a number of Jewish scholars that believe the book of Yov, Job uh, is uh, that it predates the the Torah, the written Torah. Um, the uh, whether or not it, it's historical or uh, it was meant as uh, sort of an extended parable, um, there's that's a machloka as well. There's a dis, there's a disagreement in Judaism about that. Uh, so there's no universal view even in Judaism about Job. Um, for me personally, I do actually think that it was uh, something that happened. Um, I believe, uh, trying to remember, Job is, is not Jewish, is something that uh, he's not of Israel at all, which is interesting. Uh, the story is of a, of a Gentile righteous man who is called perfect in Hashem's eyes. And the commentaries collectively sort of paint this picture that it's not so much a chess match. Um, it's more like the, the trial of Job. Now, the consequences of what happened to his family, for example, each of them would have been judged by a heavenly tribunal separately. Like, they all died while they were out 
gallivanting and having parties and whatever they were doing, uh, which the text is not real specific about, but does tend to show they were not living righteously. They were out doing their thing while Job was the one righteous person in their family that would not abandon God. Even when he got sick, his wife told him to just curse God and die. He resisted that as well. And so it's more uh, to, to borrow a metallurgy term of a refiner, of a refinement process. Um, it's also something that we're supposed to try to actively resist. Um, in my, uh, my uh, quick research on, on the subject before uh, we got together today, I came across a, a short video by Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory. And in the video, he talks about faith as protest. And he says, evil is there so that we have this thing to resist, to sharpen ourselves against, to strengthen ourselves against. If a person wants to become strong, they can't do so by simply lifting their hand up a thousand times a day. There's no resistance. They might tone themselves and be able to lift their hands up a lot easier, but they're not going to grow stronger. The strength comes from resistance. And we see this all throughout nature. So it's kind of a, a natural law. But there are other arguments for the, for the, uh, the nature of evil, which talk about needing contrast in order to appreciate true goodness. Um, but for me, the ultimate answer is actually explained because of the, 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 uh, the Hasidic and the Kabbalistic texts, actually, um, which discuss the shattering of uh, the, the previous world. And this world that we're in is actually built on a substrate of evil and darkness. And it's our job to take the pieces of light trapped in those shards, deliver them by transforming the darkness into light, and repair the world. This, what this means psychologically is that the person has to face their internal darkness. They have to face the things that they would otherwise want to deny. And they have to learn to take these desires and transform them into something holy. And the Torah provides a roadmap with each mitzvah of how to do that. One of the best books on the subject that I've read is John D. Levinson, um, Creation and the Persistence of Evil. He's a professor at Harvard and a Jewish guy who um, talks about how the, the contrast between the biblical um, narrative and the Babylonian and the other Canaanite uh, religions is that mm -hmm. you have a world of chaos and destruction and that God uh, gives life and, and through the process of creation brings about order. And that a lot of atheists, as we met, talked in the last show, they have this problem with the world being uh, chaotic or not fully perfect and that that proves mm -hmm. there is no God. But the biblical narrative does the, um, gives you the impression that the world is chaotic, but that God brings about by through his redemption, through his 
acts of uh, through miracles or the the anointing of people to speak his word or the um, the revelation of torah that he brings about healing and restoration and that that is the the mandate of of the people of god and to god uh, himself so when you see it that way that, that he instills hope and um the desire for something greater it makes more sense that it, it it fits in to me perfectly as compared to these other modes but you know in post postmodernism they would say that there's there is no evil uh it's almost like a hindu thing where mm -hmm. evil is an illusion or is how you perceive it and i've seen some of that get into like the breastlip thinking where you know when bad things happen they always attribute it to god and that is you the way that you process it that um that makes you think that it's evil but in reality it was good and it's just the way that you are taking it in but i don't fully agree with that because then they pretty much give um a free uh get out of jail free card to murderers and rapists and dictators and people like that because they're instruments of god in a sense they they whatever they do they're just doing what they're supposed to kind of like uh some people think of satan and then we are the ones that are not taking in the blows the proper way that we need to be so holy that even when we get tortured and mistreated that it, that's an act of sanctification it's almost like polemian uh take on the wounds of christ the more persecuted, the more character you build. What do you think about that approach? Yeah, that definitely reminds me of, uh, oh, what is it? The, the whole turn the other cheek thing. Um, but there's, there's a reason that, well, first off, for, for any listeners who aren't familiar with Judaism, it's a common saying that where there's two Jews, there's three opinions. So I'll express a third opinion before I give mine, <laughs> which is that there is a perspective which is off. And so because we can only see so far into the eventual future that would be developed, we can only judge the situation from this narrow bubble of personal direct experience. And if we could see the bigger picture, then everything eventually results in the good. Um, this idea is actually reflected in the Talmud. There's a, a story of Rabbi Nahum uh, Gamzu, I believe, who is the one that came up with the saying, Gamzu de Tova, which means uh, this too is for the good. Uh, this is very interesting because... Uh, Rabbi Nahum Ish Gamzu, I believe is what it was. Uh, it might be. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Um, he, had, he was paralyzed. Towards the end of his life, he suffered some paralysis and uh, then sores and uh, a whole host of other health problems, uh, ultimately leading to his death. And um, he always would receive it with grace and joy and just say, Gamzu de Tova, this too is for the good. One interesting thing that was pointed out was he did not say, Gamzu Tova, this is good. He said, Gamzu La Tova, this is for good. Which means that this may be terrible, this may be evil, but it's temporary. 
It has no permanent place. And from there, I'll launch into my idea, which I take from the Bahir, Sefer HaBahir, which is a Kabbalistic text uh, predating the Zohar. And the opening passage discusses this idea that Hashem conceals himself in this blinding light. There's just blinding radiance surrounding him so that nobody could approach him. Nobody could see him. Other passages in the Torah or in the Tanakh in general say that he's surrounded by clouds and gloom and darkness. What can possibly reconcile these two very clear contradictions? The text is then, then provides the answer in Sefer Habahir, and it says, light and darkness are the same to you. Speaking of God, this is from Tehillim. And this idea that we have evil is, in fact, a matter of perspective because we're inside the box. But in all benevolent, all powerful, all present entity, if we can go as far as to call God an entity, uh, if anybody recalls last uh, podcast, brief mention of negative theology being the only accurate way to try and describe anything. But this supreme creative causal force that we believe is very conscious and personal, is it in any way evil? Is it in any way unjust or unmerciful? If it were, nothing could exist at all. Or everything would be a giant permanent, long-lasting flu or pain, consistent, forever, eternal pain. The idea of Christian hell reflects more of this, idea, of this type of, of being. But the fact that there is this middle ground, this world of action where we can live and choose and fall in love and have children and learn love and experience all of these wonderful, miraculous things, that shows that God has always leaned towards the side of mercy, towards the side of love, towards the side of kindness. The justice of God is unquestionable, but his mercy frequently overrides. And it's, there's a, there, there's a, within segments of Judaism, there's an idea of a theurgic relationship between Israel and God. This idea that what we do impacts the creator, and it's not just a top-down relationship. And we kind of see this reflected in people like Avraham and Moshe arguing with Hashem. We see this where we look at God and we say, why is this such why is there so much evil? Why is this so bad? We know that you're good, so why is this here? And the answer that he gives us is, because you're my hands, you're my feet, you are there, I've given you my word, I've given you my mind in the Torah. And you are to do these mitzvot and shine the light and shine the good, be the good to the world. That's how you dispel darkness. You don't dispel darkness by chasing it, by beating at it. If I turn all my lights off, I can swing at the dark all I want. I'll never beat it. There's no substance to it. It describes the lack of a thing, not a thing itself.
Evil describes the lack of what we would, what we perceive as good. But does it have any substance on its own? Or is it only there for the big picture so that in the end, there is all good and everything reaches the point it's supposed to reach? And for me, that answers both of those two uh, ex more extreme views. Well, let's talk about hell because um, the concept of hell from the Catholic uh, doctrine, they say that it's the absence of good, that you are separated from God since God is all good you end up in a place where God doesn't exist or God is not manifested. And, you know, it makes sense, but does it really make sense? Because, you know, they, a lot of the stuff is from what Jesus would call uh, uh, Gehinom. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, back then, historically, it was like a trash pile that it mm -hmm. was in the outskirts of Jerusalem. And that's where they would throw all the refuse. So in a sense, you are, dismissed by God because of your wickedness or your lack of faith or whatever you're thrown into this you know, endless hole. Um, and there is some of that in the Talmud. I, I remember reading about some angels with whips made out of um, like lightning. They would uh, torture you or something. And I guess that was one guy's opinion of, of what hell would look like. Uh, what What's your understanding of this idea of, being devoid of of god in the in the next you know uh, in the world to come nothing is devoid of hashem nothing exists outside of him the minute that something exists without him it's his equal there is no such thing he specifically says in od milvado in devarim in deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 35b at the end of the verse in od milvado doesn't just mean there is no other gods. It means there is nothing else. Nothing has independent real existence other than God, which makes everything contingent upon his projecting it to be. Whatever hell is, it can't be the absence of God. Now, I've heard that it's the focused wrath of God, but that seems a bit unjust. Why would he pour out all of his wrath on, say, somebody who landed there for stealing a pack of gum and getting hit by a bus two minutes later? Hypothetically, I don't know how Hashem judges people. Like, I'm just laying out a scenario for the average, for, just for discussion. And um, it is very clear in even in the Christian commentaries, that there are levels of punishment and it's not supremely unfair. And so a person isn't going to, uh, you know, be facing some just horrific, I don't even want to get into the details. There are so many different descriptions and some of them are so grotesque, um, but they fit. They fit the idea of hell coming from the English word. Now, going back to what you were pointing out, Gehenna, this was a concept of a place where waste is discarded. The Jewish tradition, the Masorah, also includes this idea of something that fits more closely to the Catholic idea of purgatory when we talk about hell. 
and that's that uh, for for souls that did not uh, attain their mission, fulfill their mission in their life, that they may end up there for no greater than one year um, as a sort of a refinement process uh, once again. Um, we don't really have a whole lot of things uh, that anybody agrees on, and this is definitely one that we don't all agree on. Um, there are uh, Jewish believers who have, you know, from different sects of Judaism, uh, whether it be Orthodox, Hasidic, um, even Reform, maybe. Although I feel like because of their tendency towards being lenient and, and liberal and progressive, that they probably rejected the whole idea of hell. Um, I'm not really sure. But the idea that there is any kind of eternal, permanent, you'll never escape punishment. Um, that is expressed really specifically by only a handful of rabbis and only on really specific uh, sins, which they also didn't agree on. Um, but uh, I don't remember those passages very, very well. It's been probably seven or eight years since I read those. So uh, the most I could say about it from memory is that uh, there are really extreme things that are supposed to be, you're locked in, you're never going to get out. And uh, when you really think about some of them, for example, uh, denying the existence of God, atheism, strong atheism, not doubt, but being convinced that God is not real. I don't need God. I don't want God. I want nothing to do with God. That kind of mentality. Um, you get what you want. So is that really what you want? Because the best God can do is cause you to cease existing, which is an, another alternative uh, to the understanding of what happens at the end of life for the uh, truly wicked. Then there's also, once again, a middle ground, which discusses uh, what in Judaism we call Gilgalim, um, which is badly mistranslated as reincarnations. Um, I say badly mistranslated because they're a bit more complicated than the idea of one person dying and coming back and another person. Uh, and it's more of a matter of sort of spiritual genetics, but in a way that weaves the spiritual energies through different generations to purify the energies themselves and bring them back to God, which is something that uh, is understood to be reflected in the passage in Zechariah, where the prophet says that in that day, referring to uh, the, the last day, Hashem will be one and his name will be one. You mentioned as we were um, getting ready for the show that there's two uh, issues with evil. There's the the moral problem of evil and the natural problem of evil. Are you talking about like us as humans and how do we uh, respond to people who choose to do wicked things? And then the na natural problem of evil is that even in nature, there's cycles that, that are destructive. And, you know, I think that evolution and, and a lot of scientific understanding have kind of water down our understanding of evil because if you look at it in the in the animal realm um 
nobody's really evil because they're they're trying to survive. So if a lion eats a gazelle, that's just what he does. He's right. not trying to hurt the gazelle. He's just trying to survive. So mm-hmm. then they try to justify humans and say, if a guy does something bad, well, he did it because he was mistreated when he was a kid or he doesn't have the right understanding of, of the justice system or whatever. But mm-hmm. I think that um, in too many cases, especially religious people, they try to justify or forgive people too easily. And they forget that there is like an aspect of choosing evil and actually joining the, the forces of, of wickedness to the point of people have no regret, no sense of, of redemption. And, you know, you don't want to give up on people, but there, there is that thing of there's people are so far gone that what do you do with that, with that? Uh, I mean, first to, to touch on the moral problem of evil, that's usually the one that says, how can people make evil choices if there's really an all powerful benevolent God? Why is that even an available option? Um, and that sort of got partially answered already by, uh, what I was saying about it being a a refinement or a development process. Um, but I answered it actually more directly, both the problem of moral evil and natural evil, hurricanes, earthquakes, disaster, chaos. Why is chaos seeming to rule over the world? Um, obviously, at some point in the world, order had to be imposed. The second law of th- thermodynamics is unquestioned in science. So this decaying of order towards chaos is unstoppable. You have to insert in tr- a tremendous amount of energy to stop something, from, stop a system from falling into chaos. Our system fell into chaos with the first sin. We've been in that state of chaos ever since, and we've been waiting for the end of days or the end of the age is the more accurate way to translate that, and for the, the age of Mashiach, the age of the Messiah. The, the true Messiah, the real Messiah. And we want this because it'll come with real world peace. It'll come with lasting change. What is that change? That change is the rebuilding of the world. It is the fixing, the correction of the breakage that occurred with that first sin. And so when people say the world's a mess, God made a, a bad world. No, we broke it. We broke it, now we fix it. We fix it by finding someone amongst us that is so submitted to Hashem that he can flow through that person unimpeded and rule through a holy king. That's what the more uh, Hasidic, like myself, of us are, are hoping for. That's what we look for. We're waiting for this to happen, and we're also building the world as best as we can within ourselves and around us. You know, some of us have a huge reach and can reach tens of thousands of people, like the Lubavitcher Rebbe and Nachman of Breslov. You know, they've reached millions of people, Jews and non-Jews. Others have less reach, but we should still impact the people that we have contact with, the people that we can reach and, and actually interact with. How do we do this? We do this by portraying the, 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 the divine attributes that Hashem has 
given us all in a way that parallels him. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that we should be doing mitzvot, doing the commandments with our mind on Hashem and our mind on loving people. If we can love others with true joy and with our full heart, and we can demonstrate these values, values like tzedakah and sniyut, if we can do these things and show the world without having to shove it down their throat, beat them over the head, or threaten them at the point of a sword or a gun, that will bring world peace. And we know that. But we also know that the world's not ready and will continue to reject. And so we're in this match, this battle between the forces of darkness and the forces of light. And so there is some truth to that idea. It's just the, uh, the dramatized portrayal. Not so much. Maybe in the upper worlds. You know, in the spiritual world, things aren't physical, so they take on whatever form the person experienced them as. What is your position about social action? Because um, somebody was quoting Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, one of my favorite rabbis, and they were saying that um, the, the obliviousness to evil is worse than evil itself because you are... Um, not only um, allowing it to happen, you are in a sense like an accomplice because you are not doing anything to stop it. So do you think that, uh, you know, some people think that through military or other forms of, of, um, of force and, and authority that you're able to quench evil, but what about through activism, through uh, other, you know, some people say, well, pray or, you know, wish people well or something like that. What about active participation in, in uh, you know, the distorted view of tikkun olam? You know, tikkun olam in, in, in religious uh, terms means the active um, living out of the misvot, but some people have made it only social justice or only, you know, protesting or whatever. Uh, what's your take on that? Um, so just to be clear, I'm a slightly left-leaning uh, centrist politically. Um, the uh, the left-leaning probably came from being an activist. So I do believe in social justice and social activism. Um, do I believe that we can actually fix all these problems? No. Uh, when I get involved, um, I, I tend to do so from more of a perspective of making the problem known, trying to get people to see that there's an issue. That's only a first step. You can't get things to change during a protest. The protest just causes people to begin to see that there is a problem. People who stay in denial about those problems, uh, that's a wholly different subject. But yeah, I feel like those are the people that uh, Rabbi Heschel of Blessed Memory were, were talking about. Um, namely, that... Uh, the types that are like, well, it's not happening in my neighborhood, so it doesn't affect me, so I don't believe it's real. Um, even though they're seeing reports uh, possibly daily, weekly, monthly, whatever, I don't know, what hypothetical, whatever the issue might be about. Um, so they're inundated with media showing that things are happening, but they want to live in denial because it's not happening in their backyard. Um, or it's not happening to their demographic. Um, you know, for example, uh, 
there's a lot of uh, Spanish-speaking Sephardic Jews who still live in Catholic countries. We really ought to be trying to find a way to kindle that spark in them, to show them. I know there's Kirov with different Hasidic groups, uh, especially Chabad, but they only reach out to people who already know they're Jewish. And I'm not suggesting we start proselytizing by any means, but I feel like something, something's going to change. I don't know how. And I'm not making this as a, as a real prediction. I said, I feel like something is going to change. And I think that part of the reason that so many uh, conversos ended up losing their identity completely and just as fully assimilating away is because of this very same issue that you brought up, which is turning a blind eye to evil. There's this idea that uh, is called pikuach nefesh. And it basically says that there's only three categories of sin that you absolutely cannot engage in in order to save life. Uh, they are, I believe, Khalil uh, Hashem's, which that can be basically, that, that means a desecration of the name of God. But that could be so many things depending on who you talk to. Um, generally, I've always understood that to, under, to, to be expressed as, uh, like, for example, like blaspheming God intentionally. Um, uh, murdering an innocent person, out of the question. And uh, any kind of sexual sin, out of the question. So those three, no matter what, gun to your head, can't choose. You have to, you're going to take the bullet. Can't do them. But anything else, pretending to accept Yeshki, sure, that's fine. But that just sort of opened a door that let Catholicism slowly take over those families. And that's an unfortunate situation. It's good that they lived, 100%. And it's good that they're still alive and they're still out there. But I, I believe, and actually I guess I could make this as a, as a prediction, because the Torah is very clear that when Mashiach comes, all of the, the, the Jews and all of Israel scattered around the world will be drawn together. They'll be, they'll be brought back together. So their identity will be revealed. I just don't know how. But I believe that part of that is actually because of, sorry for the huge tangent there, <laughs> is because of people turning a blind eye to one small evil after another small evil after another until they forgot who they were. Well, and I think that for religious people, there's a responsibility to be kind and open and understanding. And it's easy to become entrenched and say, well, that's their problem. You know, if they decided mm -hmm. to do that to survive, then they're on their own. And, you know, I've done presentation about how Maimonides was willing to to reach out to to those individuals and then other people were completely uh, dismissive and you know they're they're out of the community so um it's easy to, to kind of um condemn people or forget about them and i don't see that in 
the Tanakh, I see God as a forgiving, a merciful God who's willing to give people a chance. So um, it's almost that thing. It's like your lack of, of caring and love for others becomes evil in the way that it manifests itself. Then now you're cutting people off and then generations are lost because of your uh, poor theology or your poor understanding of, of God's um, ability to redeem or, or bring people around from your own community. Like we're not talking about horrible mm -hmm. people. We're talking about people who were at distress and they, they had to do what they had to do to survive. Um, but that's the thing is that that hope and that ability to, to think bigger picture is I think the, what we lose as human beings. Like we are very close minded or very limited in our scope. Um, another thing that, um, that I studied in were um, there was a class I took called biblical psychology and they were saying that, you know, Freud and a lot of these guys, they, they had a very negative perspective of humanity. So they would use all these very uh, disturbing Greek tales to, to define human behavior. So everything was about incest and everything was about selfish motives and things like that. And they justify human behavior based on those myths. But if you look at the stories in the Bible, they're all redemptive stories. They're all stories of people you know, struggling, but then coming to a realization or an understanding for a hopeful uh, future. And one of the stories that I um, dealt with was the story of Saul committing suicide and that how he had despaired, like he had felt that he lost the battle, that David was going to become king. And uh, he ended up, you know, um, falling over a sword. And it was this idea that as human beings, we, we go through all these things and it's easy for you to, uh, to, to lose, um, you know, hope and to, feel abandoned and things like that. So that there's always something redemptive in every biblical story. And I think that um, even when evil is portrayed in the Bible, it's always with uh, a greater uh, story behind it. So a lot of the attacks that, that you get on the Bible is that um, there's so much violence and there's so much, um, you know, infighting and things like that. And then it portrays humans in a very native light. So um, I feel that the Bible depicts humans in a very real way. And that's what it makes it attractive. If it said that everybody was uh, heavenly or that mm -hmm. everyone was oblivious to what was going on, then you wouldn't have these very compelling stories. It would be very plain and, and fantastical. But all the stories have are, you know, examples of people responding to evil or overcoming it. Uh, do you see that in, in the narratives as well, that there's always um, a way to make sense of all these very challenging uh, troubles that they went through? Absolutely. And that, that goes 100% back to the, the refinement development process I was talking about. From the point of view of the creator, this is what I was getting at with the quote from the Bahir. Evil doesn't exist. It's just a temporary projection of some chaos to create these these resistances for us to grow and and to shape us into something more like him what does it mean to be more like him it means to attain the qualities of character 
And we do that from following the Torah. The stories in the Torah show us a direct path. If you've faltered with this, look, this one also struggled with something similar. If you did this, check this out. Like, there's not a one-to-one match because these are sadikim that the story is talking about, saintly people. And so they weren't out there, you know, indiscriminately robbing and killing. Uh, but they didn't always do the right thing. And when they did wrong, we, I, we do see even the children of Israel, the children of Yaakov. And we see them get pretty violent and nasty from time to time. Um, and we see this incredible redemptive story with them going into Egypt after they had already thought they had basically gotten rid of their brother. It's interesting because, you know, we're closing out the book of Bereshit. <laughs> so this good overlap. <laughs> and this whole uh, idea that evil has any kind of independent will or power, that's where people have the biggest issue. That's where people come to the biggest problem because it isn't evil. Evil isn't evil. Evil is a temporary negative situation, just like a, a current, a, an electrical current has positive and negative charges. Um, you know, inside of an atom, you have a proton. Outside, you have a valence shell of an electron or electrons. If you don't have these things, it's unstable and will quickly become a pair of those things. Nature just reverberates this kind of relationship in so many parallel ways. And so this idea that God somehow messed up by allowing evil to exist is really naive. And a question that I am always bothered by, that I don't know if you can answer, but when these skeptics bring this up, from where do they define what is evil? If they come from a system that denies any authority beyond humanity, then morality becomes arbitrary and relative, right. which is something they frequently argue. And if it is arbitrary, if it really is arbitrary and purely human invention, then how can they say anything in the world is evil? Well, there's an emotional component, and you know they always point to children dying of starvation or I went to a meeting where a professor was bringing up how there's a type of bunny that for it to digest his food, he has to eat his own excrement. And he was like rabid about that. He's like, what kind of a God would do that to a bunny? And and I'm like, come on, man. It's like uh, cows have five stomachs and can't chew the cud. So that's why they, they have different processes or whatever. So this bunny, you know, doesn't have the right bacteria or whatever. And he has to, you know, put it through again and, you know, whatever is a fluke or something happened. But like, that's your biggest concern that this animal that you have nothing to do with cannot, you know, process this food. And it's just, um, it's funny what people gravitate to. He also said that 
he wore glasses and that if he didn't have glasses in the wild, he wouldn't survive. And it's like, okay, so you take a totalitarian view. And so then everybody who cannot survive on their own would die. And then you take this super emotional view that you have to be totally compassionate and supportive of everyone who God has created um, to not be able to survive. So you have these two extremes. You're, you worry about people, but then at the same time you say that they they have no worth unless you give them worth or they're able to survive on their own. So it's, it's a human dilemma within themselves, but, you know, sometimes religious people make things worse by giving weird uh, answers or platitudes like, well, God has a purpose or that bunny, you know, was meant to be like that or whatever. But it's just, they cannot fathom how complex things are. And there are many different ways you can look at it and to be okay with that. They want a simple answer to very challenging things. And I think that's part of the problem. Yeah. Sometimes the best we can do is give you an answer. (laughs) So, but um, I still, you know, you know, talking about, you know, we don't want to discuss politics in the show because you can get blasted or go into all these kinds of tangents. But one of the biggest hot topics is, the um, death penalty and abortion and things like that. And they say that there's inconsistency between, you know, a biblical perspective on those subjects. And even the biblical perspective, there's different interpretations based on what tradition you come from. But this idea that killing a human being for causing damage to another human being or doing something horrible, that that doesn't, it's almost like people who are anti-Paulinian or anti-Christianity, they say that going to hell for being Hitler does not fit the crime. And I'm like, so you're telling me killing 10 million people does not fit the crime? It's like, well, maybe you should be there for a year or 10 years or 20 years or 100 years. But if you're there for all eternity, that is overkill. That God sending you to this place of torture or of complete devoid of his love, that that's too much. That no human being would ever deserve that. So the same thing would go with someone killing another human being that, you know, how is taking their life going to take, you know, bring back the other one or, you know, how can, how can another human being judge if they deserve that or not? And I know in Israel, they made it with only Nazis are allowed to uh, receive capital punishment and everybody else gets something else. So uh, without going too much into it and, and getting ourselves uh, into trouble, uh, what is the justification from a Torah perspective regarding that? Like, what are the things that are the most egregious that um, an act of violence brings about some type of balance back to the, the force in a sense? Well, this is going to leave us on a suspenseful cliffhanger for the next episode. Right. Uh, and uh, here's why, because with that very, very heavily loaded question, we come up with the commandment to destroy everything of Amalek. Okay. Something that is frequently pointed out by atheists as, the, as some sort of proof that God is capricious, angry, uh, wrathful, merciless, hateful, whatever. Mm-hmm. The thing is, sort of like you pointed out, who are we to judge, for starters? Uh, were you there? No. Uh, do you have any idea what Amalek is like? No. Um, Historical records, pretty shoddy. 
So uh, we know they existed. We know they were pagan. Uh, we know they sacrificed humans. Other than that, we don't know too much. Um, but uh, we do know that when Israel tried to make peace with other nations around itself, Amalek was not with it. Uh, we know Israel uh, had been sort of sucker punched by Amalek. Um, there seems to be something spiritually defective with Amalek. And without being able to see the big, big picture, without being able to psychoanalyze every single person that was there, without being able to actually historically view Amalek during their daily lives, I can't say anything other than I believe that because in every other situation in my life, Hashem has been just, kind, and loving, even when that meant me losing my wife. If I can see his justice, his mercy, and his kindness behind all of that, and know that even in the worst situation in my life, that there was something good that would eventually come, then I can't say God was unjust for commanding us to wipe out Amalek. Which, by the way, for any listeners, we never finished doing. So... You know, could that be an additional part of why the world is in so much chaos? Well, it's just, um, you know, in war and in, um, you know, politics um, of, of resistance or survival, there always comes to a point where it's either you or them. And mm-hmm. for, for modern audiences, they're like, you should never put yourself in that situation. Um, and, you know, this is a first for me to, to share with the public. My grandfather um, was taking care of his ranch where you know, his, his own dad put him in charge of, you know, make sure that everything's safe in this ranch back in Mexico in the 1920s. Um, and some guy jumped the fence. And I think he, he, he warned him, you know, you need to stop, you know, get off my property. And the guy like charged at him. And he shot him. And his whole life, he was in pain because he killed someone. It wasn't an easy decision. It wasn't something that he was flipping about. He was always in pain for having had that experience. And then the rest of his life, he was in fear that this guy's um, relatives would kill him or a member of his family. So whenever we talk about something as controversial as biblical history or the death penalty or anything that involves uh, the loss of human life, it's not an easy thing or a decision that is done flippantly. It's something that it is very um, heavy and, and that we all get challenged with when we think about war, when we think about protecting your families, when we think about terrorism and all kinds of things that, that might come our way. So it's not a, a simple, like, Oh yeah, you know, I already made up my mind. Like, you have to struggle through it. You have to look at different sources. You have to think about it in the context of history and uh, world, um, you know, regional uh, conflicts and stuff like that to to come to a, a place of understanding. And and some people, even the smartest people in the world, are still struggling with it. So, 
we don't want that to become a point of contention, but it's something that has to be um, addressed somehow. Absolutely. Um, the last thing I wanted to share was also from Rabbi uh, Lord Jonathan Sachs. It's from that same little video. And the way he said faith as protest, something that really struck me because it, 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 the way he described it fit perfectly with the idea of tikkun olam uh, that's represented in the Hasidic community. Um, this idea of going out and actually doing things to repair the world. Um, but there was this thread of thought that occurred because you brought up social justice and protests. And Rabbi Sachs pointed out that faith as protest against injustice is what's important. And I wanted to leave all of our listeners and viewers on this last note. The word sadaka, we usually translate as charity, but it means justice. It means to make right a wrong. And so, especially at this time of year in the Northern hemisphere of the world where it's very cold, it's winter time, any of us sees somebody on the street that needs any help, if it's in your hand to give, give. Don't be uh, hyper-focused on you know, a few dollars if somebody clearly needs help. Um, you know, I say that because that is the light that defeats the darkness. Not Sadaka alone, but it's a big tool. And of course, if you can't give, there's other ways to help. So always be looking for ways to, to be charitable and to bring justice and loving kindness into the world. Definitely. So we want to thank you again for your time and, and our listeners for checking out this, uh, this conversation. We just want to keep on, um, keep the things uh, that are important um, in the forefront of the conversation. You know, there are many podcasts and shows about all kinds of different subjects. We're talking about the nitty gritty, the stuff that, that really matters and how as um, relatively young people, we have to, um, you know, think about it and, and discuss things to come to a greater understanding. So, um, and again, in our show, we want to look at it from a religious perspective, but also taking into consideration all the different approaches that are out there. Um, so thanks again, uh, Mikhail, and we uh, will be back next week with another uh, episode. Um, and I guess um, that was a preview that we we're going to discuss um, the way that, you know, can you, can you, um, the word they use a lot is, can can you legislate morality? So I think that mm -hmm. would be the topic. And then we can go down the different issues. So, um, you know, the Torah was given to Moses. And some people say that he was the greatest uh, legal mind for enacting it and making it a real in the, in the, in the nation of, of Israel at that time. So um, we're going to see how in our individual countries uh, that has, have been influenced by, um, the commandments and, and how that has been um, ruled out for the rest of humanity. So thanks again, and uh, we'll see you guys next time.